So we've been in this series for a while. We're going through the book of First and Second Samuel. It's uh, one book, two volumes. We're heading our way through it. Today is week 20. Um, if you were around our church before COVID, you know that my standard practice for doing books of the Bible is to just simply race through them. Uh, before we got into the book of Matthew in 2021, I never spent more than 10 weeks on any message series. And now over the last couple of years, we've gone deep into a couple of them for a couple specific reasons. And the biggest reason is that we want to get great clarity on who our true leader is. And the book of Matthew was trying to point us to Jesus as our king. And the book of David is trying to remind us the kind of king that God wants. Because in the book of Samuel, where we hear the story of David, in the books of Samuel, we get the contrast with Saul, a guy who wasn't the king like God wanted, and David, the guy who is the king like God wants. And in this journey, we've been trying to figure out what is it about David that makes him so pleasant to God. Because David is not a perfect guy. David does a lot of things that are wrong. And we've seen time and time again that he is exploitative towards women and uh, that doesn't get challenged until next chapter, uh, until next week, in fact. Uh, we haven't seen that get challenged at all. We've seen David be incredibly violent at some times, and other times he's been incredibly gracious. Today, you're going to see both of them. And it's like this, there's, there's this struggle that we have where we're trying to understand who King David really was and why God was so pleased with him, but it all comes under this umbrella that we've covered so many times in the past couple of weeks that is so important to just keep remembering. I don't, I'm not going to put the verse up here, but I've quoted it so many times for you from 1 Samuel chapter 13, where Samuel says to King Saul, King Saul, God is done with you. The Lord is looking after someone after his own heart. And then immediately after that, Samuel anoints David because David is the one that God has identified as the man after his own heart. And we've learned that that doesn't mean David is perfectly like God. It means David is pursuing God. And even when he gets on his detours or derails, he actually comes back. Unlike Saul, who just went on his own way all the time. David's the kind of guy who comes back. Today, we're going to come to a middle story. We've just finished the story of David like becoming king over all Israel, and today is a middle story. It's just a little bit of narrative of what David is like when he's in battle, a little bit of na narrative about what David is like when he's at home, and a little bit of narrative hinting at a problem in the future. And it boils down to this. When David is fully engaged in the work of being king, God gives him victory. And he does great virtue through him. But when David fades away, when he is less engaged, when he is less present, things begin to go bad. And so let's take a look at some of these little stories to find out how this all works. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 8, and I'm just going to start right away in verse 1. It says this, in the course of time, which by the way, you will notice this phrase, I haven't pointed it out to you a lot, but you will notice this phrase a lot in the books of First and Second Samuel because the narrator of this story is trying to coalesce a narrative whole into one non-chronological time. We don't know when this happened. It's in the course of time. But he's using this as sort of a prefix for a general statement on kind of the way David's kingdom worked, but especially at the beginning, because this is happening mostly at the beginning. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Well, that's great. The people of God were wrestling against the Philistines for a long time. It's about time someone stepped in and just subdued them. He took Metheg Amah from the control of the Philistines, apparently a, a major city. Verse 2, David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down. Now, okay, now I'm going to read something to you again that is gross. Um, he made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Quick comment. The narrator of the story does not tell us if that was a good thing or a bad thing that David did. 
lining up the Moabites on the ground, taking two lengths of cords and killing them, and then letting the third length live. Nowhere in the Scripture does it tell us that God told David to do that. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that God was disappointed with David for doing that. We don't have God's perspective on this thing, and so I can't draw my perspective on it. I can just say, like you, I think that's violent. And it kind of repulses me a little bit. But there's a bigger picture, and the bigger picture is that these Moabites that they've been struggling against for a very, very long time are now subdued under David's control. And David can show mercy where he wants to show mercy, and he can show no mercy when he wants to show no mercy. And it just tells us that he has that authority. Verse 3, Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at, Euphrates, at the Euphrates River. So apparently Hadadezer had a monument at the Euphrates River that was destroyed, and so he's passing through the region of Israel to get over to the Euphrates River, and he gets wiped out by David there. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Now, if you're willing to capture people, why did you kill the other people? I don't know. But he's capturing these people. And then it says he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Again, that's weird. Hamstringing is when you cut the back tendon of a horse so that the, the rear end of the horse can no longer power the rear leg of the horse. And so you've effectively disabled the horse. It cannot perform any good for you. And then you, the horse's owner, have to decide whether you're going to kill your horse or somehow take care of this incapacitated horse. It's another incredible way to demonstrate lordship, to demonstrate control over another group of people by hamstringing their horse. But if you're going to capture all the chariots and you're going to capture all these charioteers, why would you ruin the horses? I don't get it. The logic doesn't make sense to me. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to show us one more place where David has had victory. One more place where David has done what he thought needed to be done. Verse 5, when the Aramaeans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Aramaeans became subject to him and brought him tribute. So, so far what we've got is we've got Israel here. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. If you think about the map of the ancient world, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is the strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea here. Here's Egypt and Africa and stuff down here. But Israel is on the, uh, over here. Israel's on the strip next to the Mediterranean Sea. Damascus is over here, and Zobah is up here, and both of these countries have come down and have done something and David has defeated them and so now David is in charge of all this territory too. So David has all of the Philistine area that was simultaneously where the Israelites were. David also has all the Moabites who are down here. David now has the Aramaeans up here and he's also got the region of Zobah. He is the king over an area that's like twice, maybe three, maybe four times as large as the original promised land. He's just expanding the borders. He's got tribute and treasure all over the place. And the line here at the last part of this verse is so amazing. It says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Wherever David went, he just kept winning. Victory is coming from the Lord wherever David goes. Remember that phrase? It'll come back. Let's keep reading, though, because after we read that, it says this in verse 7, David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. I'd love to tell you the story about the gold shields. They show up like three or four more times in the Old Testament, and I just don't have time today to get into that. So you could do a search in your Bible for gold shields and trace how they travel through Israel. It'll be interesting, perhaps. But anyway, David captures them here. And verse 8, from Teba and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When two, king of Hamat, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. 
Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And here it is again. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Write that down. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Every line of this phrase is important. Every word of this phrase is important. So important that the narrator has given it to us twice. The Lord is behind this. And the Lord has chosen to give to David victory wherever David goes. Now, you can begin to get just a little hint of a question. It's just a, it's just a hint of a question. It's not a fully formed question. But the hint is, what would happen if David ever gets outside of the will of God? Well, then would God give David victory wherever he went? Or another question is, what happens if David stops going places? What would happen then? If the Lord gives David victory wherever he went, what happens if David stops going? We'll come back to that in a little bit, because before we address that, I want to be really clear with you that when it comes to the God part of the question, David is stuck on God. David has all this victory. He has all this tribute coming from all these nations. He's got all this land. He's got all this great stuff coming to him. And unlike every king in antiquity, David gives God all the credit for this victory. Here's the amazing thing. Unlike most kings who would say, oh man, look at me, look at the stuff that I've done, look at the stuff that I'm doing for God. David doesn't do that. He doesn't say, look at all the work I'm doing for God. David says, look at all of this plunder that God has won for himself. That's why he dedicates all this to God. The word dedicate is the same word that means to devote something unquestionably to God. It's the same word that was used when God told Joshua to defeat the city of Jericho and said, everything in the city belongs to God, so give it all back to God. David says, all of this plunder, all that I have won, all that, that I have done here, all of this victory, it's all because of God. And so I'm giving all of it back to him. I don't know what he does with the chariots and the charioteers and and the horses that are not hamstrung. I don't know what he does with all that stuff, but when it comes to all this treasure and stuff, all of that goes straight into God's treasury. An interesting thing, but the way this chapter ends raises another one of these little questions. Let's read just how it ends. It says this in verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That's an amazing line. Listen, at the end of my life, I would love to have people say about me that I had done what was just and right for all the people that I knew, for all the people in my life. And David, here it says, he reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Al. Ahilud was the recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Zariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites. And if you've been paying attention to the earlier chapters of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, some of these names are familiar to you. But here's the thing at the end that's weird. And David's sons were priests. I don't have time to dig into this. I just know something's wrong here. Because let's be clear, David was a descendant from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was not the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was where we get the Levites, who were the priests. The tribe of Judah was not where we get the Levites, who are the priests. And so, it makes sense for Abiathar to be one of the priests. It doesn't make sense 
for one of David's sons to be a priest. The, the text doesn't go into details here about anything more than that. We don't learn anything more, but we get a hint of something. A lot of what David's time as king is going to be about is involved with how he structures leadership and how he handles his sons. You're going to see this theme come up again. How David structures leadership and how he handles his sons are the major theme of the end of this book. When we cross the line of chapter 12, everything from then to the end of the book is how David deals with his leaders and his sons and where he's made mistakes there. And so here, this is just a little foreshadowing of some of that. But I can't explain it today. It's going to take a little while for us to get there. So let's just keep reading and see what chapter 9 brings us. Chapter 9, it says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? If you don't remember, David made a promise to Jonathan. He said, Jonathan, I'm going to love you like a brother for my whole life. And Jonathan said, David, I'm going to love you like a brother for my whole life. And the two of them made a covenant with each other that they would look out for each other, they'd protect one another, they would care for one another. And now Jonathan's dead. And so David's like, I made a promise to Jonathan a long time ago. Is there anyone still in that family that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's house, household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, Are you, Ziba, at your service? He replied. Um, now, this is interesting. Uh, Ziba was not a servant of Jonathan. Ziba was a servant of Saul, right? It's interesting that he's still alive. Because here's a guy who served the former king, and the former king is dead, and the new king is there. It's interesting that the new king has left the servants of the former king alive. But let's... Keep going. Are you, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. A couple of weeks ago, we actually looked at this story, but I skipped over it. This is a little part of the story where uh, David's uh, rival king, one of Saul's sons, a guy named Ishbosheth, was a rival king, and he was being assassinated. And while Ishbosheth was being assassinated, there was another thing that happened. And so I'm going to jump back there with you right now. I skipped over it before, but I'm going to read you the verse now. It's from 2 Samuel 4 4. It says this Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. And so this is Jonathan's son, whose name is Mephibosheth, and Jonathan's son was, when he was very young, being carried away from the temple area, wherever Saul's palace was, excuse me, palace, he was being carried away from that and the nurse dropped him and something happened with his feet and so he's lame in both feet. And you will see that phrase repeated so many times. He was lame in both feet. He was lame in both feet. It showed up there in chapter four. It showed up here once already in chapter nine and you'll see it again. But Ziba says, yes, there's this guy Mephibosheth who's lame in both feet. Verse four. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's households were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. I know there's a lot of names in there, and a lot of times you're reading these Old Testament stories, and you're like, well, this is another name, this is another story about a whole bunch of names that I don't really understand who these people are, and why do I have to listen to this story anyway, or whatever. You know, when I was a little kid, it was really kind of cool, because you could have a little a chart, graph, we call, we call them flannel graphs, these little paper dolls. You could have this little paper doll of a lady holding a baby, and then dropping the baby, and that was always funny for the kids, because, of course, we sang songs about, you know, when the bow breaks, the baby will fall, and down will come you know, we've, we've heard those songs before, and so the idea of dropping babies when you are a child is not too scary, but we know better. This is a really tragic story to share with some children. And here's this guy who has a baby, both his feet were broken and they didn't have the technology back then to figure out how to heal him. But how much worse for Mephibosheth himself Here is a helpless, disabled individual in a society that does not care for helpless, disabled individuals who is the grandson of the king who's dead and who is the son of Jonathan who is dead. In any other culture in the ancient world, Mephibosheth would already be dead. Because when the new king shows up on the scene, he doesn't say, how can I be kind to my predecessor and my predecessor's family? The new king who shows up on the scene says, no, we're going to track down all of my predecessors and we're going to track down my predecessor's family and we're going to eliminate them all and take care of them. But there's a context. There's a verse that we already saw today that is worth mentioning again. 2 Samuel 8, 15. I'll put it back up on the screen. It says, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. You see, the characterization of David in these stories, even though there's parts of the stories that don't get any judgment statement, and even though there are parts of the stories that kind of repulse us, there's this bigger picture thing that says David is doing what is just and right for all of his people. So at least with regard to the Israelite people that he's ruling, David is doing the right thing and the just thing. And in this story, we get a picture of David doing something that is just and right. Things that are virtuous. In fact, I want to give you three of them. Three things that are virtuous that we can find in this little story. First of all, it's virtuous to keep your promise. David made a promise to Jonathan and he said, Jonathan, I'm going to care for you and your family. And Jonathan said to David, David, I'm going to care for you and your family as long as I live. If one of us dies, we're going to keep the promise. David is keeping that promise. It is virtuous to keep your promise. Number two, it's also virtuous to show respect for your opponents. Oh my goodness, don't we live in a world today where it would be amazing if people started showing some virtue? It's virtuous to show respect to your opponents. David had the authority to hamstring thousands of horses, to kill a third of the Moabites. He had the authority to do all this stuff. He could have wiped out Jonathan's family. He would have been doing Mephibosheth a favor by ending his life. That guy was lame in both feet. Lame in both feet. Did I say it enough times? Lame in both feet. And yet David says, no, I'm going to track down people to be kind to, especially if they were my opponents. And so Ziba comes, at your service, and David puts him to service. Mephibosheth comes, he says, at your service, and David says, no, 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 I'm at your service. Gives him all the land of his grandfather Saul. This just doesn't happen. But it is virtuous. It is what David is doing. It is virtuous to show respect, honor, grace to your opponents. But there's a third thing. And it is because the writer repeats Mephibosheth's ailment so many times that I really believe the narrator of this story is trying to get you and me to grasp this too. It is virtuous 
when the powerful care for the powerless. You see, it's one thing for David to say to Mephibosheth, I'm going to send you five bucks a week so that you can buy yourself enough food. It's virtuous for David to say to Mephibosheth, I'm going to make sure someone takes care of you somewhere. But what David does is he gives Mephibosheth all of the authority of the people who went before him, who rightfully lost the land. Saul justifiably lost lost all of his land and property. Justifiably, David now can take all of that. It's right, it's proper, it's okay. But David says no. When powerful people use their power to help the powerless, that's what is right and just for all of our all of the people. You know, I'm not I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is a rule book for the way our country operates, but I will just acknowledge the fact that when David was the king, Social welfare for disabled people really took a, um, a rise. At least for this guy. I mean, we don't know what he did for the rest of the people. But at least for Mephibosheth, we get this idea that the power of David is being leveraged to help this powerless person. But you know what? At the end of this, we've just seen a story of David being engaged in battle and there's victory. And then we see David being engaged at home, and there's virtue. But it raises this question, doesn't it? What happens when David doesn't show up? In fact, I want to ask it to you this way. We heard the phrase early on that God gave David victory wherever he went. So I want to ask you, if you want victory, how do you get it? Back then, let's say you were living back then and you needed some victory. If you wanted victory, how would you get it? Well, there are two ingredients, right? God and David. But because God is working through David, there's really just one ingredient. You need David. So if you want victory, you need David. Now, let's flip the question a little bit. What if you are David and someone around you needs victory? What do you do then? The only way for them to get their victory is for you to show up. If the Lord gives victory to David wherever he goes, then David has to go. David is the one who is carrying victory. Well, we could ask the same thing about virtue. I mean, the phrase didn't say the Lord gave David virtue or did virtue through David wherever he went, but then we find the story of David displaying this virtue. And so we could ask the same question. If you're a person who needs some virtue in your life, who do you talk to? Well, you talk to David. And if you're David and there is someone in this area who needs virtue, you've got to get engaged. And it raises the question, what happens when David disengages? What happens when David doesn't get involved? We're going to see that. We're going to see it dramatically next week when we study chapters 11 and 12. It's horrifically sad what happens in chapters 11 and 12 when David disengages the wrong way and then engages the wrong way. But in chapter 10, we get a hint. And so because chapter 10 kind of gives us a hint into next week, we're going to go ahead and read through it now. It says this, in the course of time, again, so this is a different story, a different time, a different encapsulation. The narrator just wants us to know this thing, but the narrator chose to put this thing right next to the previous thing. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. When David was on the run, he got kindness from a lot of foreign kings, and this apparently was one of the kings who showed him some kindness, and David is like, I want to show some kindness to him too. This other guy who is now kind of technically my enemy, I'm going to show kindness to him too. So David sent. The Lord gave David victory wherever he, what's the verb there? Went. Here, David says, it's time for me to show some kindness. And so David 
sent. There's a very interesting change that's going on there. Let's see what happens as this story progresses. David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Okay, see, there's a red flag. If you really want to honor someone, you go yourself. The fact that David sent someone else, this is a red flag. They're concerned. Why would David be sending other people if he's going to express his own sympathy? You don't send other people to do this. They must be spies. And so they say that. Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. Listen, if you don't read your Bible, you've got to read your Bible. This, this is good stuff in here. Because, I mean, you just got to picture this situation. David gets victory from God whenever he goes somewhere. And now, David has not gone, so if anyone has gone, it's God by himself. But in this particular context, David going halfway results in a halfway success for this trip as these guys get half of their beard cut off and half of their clothing cut off. And so they are literally coming back with half of their rear showing because David did a half of his rear job. If that makes sense. By going halfway... This situation shows up with intentionally halfway illustrations all over the place. And now, when these men come back, is David going to go all in? Or is he going to continue to go halfway somehow? Verse 5, when David was told about this, he sent messengers. He sent messengers to meet the men, not to let them come all the way back. He's sending messengers halfway to meet them on their way to meet them, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. And on the one hand, you could say this is virtuous because if these men come all the way back into Israel, they are going to be humiliated in front of all the people who know them. They're going to come all the way back into Israel. They're going to be humiliated because remember back then, if you shaved off your whole beard, you looked just like a teenager and that was as humiliating as having half of a beard. And so it's not like they could shave off their whole beard and come home and everything be normal, they would be humiliated then too. And so David is being so kind to them. He's showing them kindness by saying, listen, hole up in Jericho for a little while and then once everything has grown back and we get you some new clothing and all this kind of stuff, then you can come back and you won't be so humiliated. But on the other hand, David is still doing a halfway job because he is also protecting his own humiliation. You see, if these messengers come back into Jerusalem... David's going to be humiliated too. But by stashing them away in Jericho, only letting them come halfway home, David himself doesn't have to deal with the humiliation either. So David does a half job. These guys have half success in their place. They get sent back with half their beard, half their clothes. Messengers meet them halfway. David says, why don't you wait there halfway over there at Jericho? And then once everything is back to normal, then you can come back to me. There's no judgment about what's going on here. There's just the hint that when David disengages, whatever kind of victory happens is only halfway. Let's keep going. Verse 6. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rahab and Zobah, as well as the king of Maaka with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. They've just hired a whole bunch of mercenaries, a whole bunch of guerrilla fighters. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. There was the verb again. Did you see it? I read it quickly. David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gates, while the Aramean son of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maaka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. Joab is halfway between the two armies. 
battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel, and he deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Abishai, you're my brother. You take half the men and go that way. I'm going to take half the men, and I'm going to go that way. And then he says this. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you're to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. We can't escape here. We're surrounded. We can't retreat. And so if they're getting you, I'm going to have to turn around and help you. And if they're getting me, you're going to have to turn around and come and help me. And we'll just, whatever. Joab puts this together. Verse 12, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And I like it that Joab is still faithful. He's still trusting God. He's still like, I think God is going to move. Let's let God be in charge of this. And you and I know the backstory, right? You and I know the secret. God does want to be involved. Does, God does want to bring victory. That's part of God's plan. He does want to care for the people of Israel. But you see, there's a thing. He's chosen to work through David. He's given David the calling and he's given David the promise of the covenant in the last chapter. He's given David the anointing. He's given David the kingship. And so, yes, God wants to move. But as we've seen so far, God moves through David. And here's Joab and he's like, maybe we'll get God without David. And let's see what happens. Then Joab with the troops, Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans and they fled before him. He has success in front of him. And then when the Ammonites, the guys behind him, realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So Joab wins. He, he goes after the Arameans and they run away. He go, and then the Ammonites see that and then they run away. And here's Joab and he's one-ish. Keep reading. Then it says, verse 15, after the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. This victory was only halfway. They regrouped. Had a dazer, had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. They went to Helam with Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites any more. And you see this story. The narrator of this story has done something very intentional. It's something that we should see and it's something that we should be thinking about. We already know that the Lord gives David victory wherever he goes, wherever he went. But then we see multiple times David sending other people to do something. And every time he sends, half of the work gets done. Only half of the work gets done. But then finally, at the very end, David hears once more that something needs to be done, victory needs to happen, and David finally decides that he is going to get up, re-engage, and go. But when he disengaged, everything got worse. When David was engaged, there was victory and there was virtue, but when he disengaged, everything got worse. You know, the, as you read the story, you might get the picture that the narrator is just trying to be a fanboy for David. The narrator is just trying to be a hype man for David, you know. He's just trying to make sure that David comes across as the miracle worker. David comes across as the savior. If David's not involved, things don't go so well. But as soon as David gets involved, oh yeah, it's on. And now David is this, you know, he's this, he's this magical winner type guy. And you might read the story that way, but you shouldn't. Because remember, David gives all the credit for his victory to God. And remember 
The narrator tells us that it was God all the time. Here's the point. David isn't magic. He's just the king. This is his calling. This is his job. This is what God has chosen him to do. God has chosen him to be the anointed leader of the people of Israel. And so David isn't the magical one who when he shows up, everything seems to work. David isn't the smartest one who when he shows up, they get the battle plan right. I mean, Joab was really smart with his battle plan. David isn't the best warrior where when he shows up, now finally they can win. There's something else going on and it is this. God shows up when David shows up. And it's not because of David, it's because of the arrangement God made with David. God said to David, you're my king, so be my king. And when David engages and when he shows up, there is victory and there is virtue. It's like the phrase that we've seen so many times, talked about so many times already today. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now, how do you apply this to us today. I mean, it's an interesting story, sure. And it's an interesting story about a man chosen by God to do a particular job. And when he's engaged in that work, then yes, God shows up. Miracles happen almost. And victory happens. And virtue happens. And when he's engaged, the work of God is done. And when he's disengaged, so many things fall apart. When he's disengaged, it only gets halfway done and it doesn't work. And so the question is, well, what is that? how do I relate to that? I'm not David. I haven't been anointed to be the king. What in the world? How do I relate to that? Does God promise me victory wherever I go? No. So what's, what's my connection to this? And I think it just boils down to a question that all of us need to ask ourselves. And the question goes like this. Well, what is my calling? What is my calling? See, David needs to engage where God has called him and then God will show up. And so the principle that we can take away from it is not, oh, this only works for David people. The principle that we can take from it is that this works when God has called someone. When God has called someone to a particular thing, God is going to empower that particular thing. God is going to bring victory. He's going to bring virtue into that particular situation. And so the question is not, have I engaged or have I disengaged? The first question is, where should I engage? What's my calling? What is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing? Um, Back in 1993, my dad was the pastor of a church in Apple Valley, California. We moved to Apple Valley when I was three. And um, my dad had been at that church for 16 years. And so my freshman year of college, I was away, but during my freshman year of college, uh, some things were going on at that church that had been percolating for a while. My dad always thought that his call was to that church specifically, yes, but my dad also always thought that his call was to preach God's word in such a way and lead the church in such a way that the church would grow. And so there was this idea in my dad's heart that he needed to preach and teach and do the administrative stuff in the church and do whatever kind of church marketing things needed to happen and do whatever kind of executive leadership things needed to happen and manage whatever kind of staff needed to happen and do whatever kind of business meetings needed to happen and handle the finances in whatever way needed to be handled so that the church could then grow and get bigger. It was this mindset that every church has had at some point in time and uh, most churches these days kind of feel like they have to have. It is the sense that if we are not growing numerically, then we're not doing our job. And my dad had bought into this mentality completely, and he thought that was his calling, to preach and teach and lead and administer and all this stuff so that the church would grow. And over the 16 years that we were there, the church did grow, and it didn't grow, and it did grow, and it didn't grow. And it went through these ups and downs. At one point, we had a Sunday morning where we had 650 people in the room at one time. Another point, there was a Sunday morning that we had like 40 people in the room at one time. And it was just one of these up and down kind of things. It was almost always on a Sunday morning right around the the 200 mark. But you know, it had its ups and downs. And and my dad had gone through that. And years after he had started working at that church, he began to have a stirring in his heart that maybe the calling on his life was a little bit different somehow. 
Maybe the calling on his life wasn't about administering budgets and handling business meetings and tracking down which person was cleaning the building at which point in time. And and maybe his calling was something different. He just wanted to teach people God's word and shepherd them and care for them and have them learn to love each other. And so being inspired by there's possibly another thing that we could do, he started a second church underneath the umbrella of the first church. They met on Saturday night. It was called New Hope Chapel. And it was just a group of people where they got together, they sang songs, he taught them the word of God, and then during the week they'd be in like small groups and that was it. All of the money that they collected didn't even stay with New Hope Chapel, it just went to the parent church. And New Hope Chapel was just this thing that he was kind of doing on the side. You know, just caring for people, loving people, teaching them to love each other. Like 40 people would show up to that thing every Saturday night. And it was honestly the cooler of the worship gatherings that that church had. And so my friends and I would usually hang out over there at Saturday night. But I went to college. And when I was in college that first year, at some point during that year, the leadership of the church decided that my dad was engaged with New Hope Chapel in such a way that they believed was causing him to be disengaged from the church itself And they were concerned about how these things were working together. And so they said, listen, Mark, we just got to cancel New Hope Chapel. It's taken too much much away from the overall ministry of the church. And so I don't know exactly how it happened because I wasn't in the room, but somehow they convinced my dad to close down the New Hope Chapel thing and then to reinvest energies in the Sunday morning thing, the, the parent church normal thing. And then about a year later, The week I was getting ready to come home from college, my freshman year, my dad gives me a phone call the day before I get on the airplane, and he says, Jeff, I just want to let you know, the church today has asked me to resign. They've said that it's time for a change of pastoral leadership. And my dad was so relieved because he had had this sense of clarity that God had clarified his call, that the call that my dad actually had on his heart was different from the call that he thought he had in that particular church environment. And so he took a summer of prayer and meditation and fasting and thought and planning. And at the end of that summer, he started a brand new church 15 miles away in another town from scratch trying to do the thing that was on his heart from New Hope Chapel. And I tell you that story Because I want to illustrate to you that your calling might morph. The way you were called when you were 18 or 20 or 30 might be different from the way God is calling you now. And you finding your calling and me finding my calling, those are the core questions that we have to answer with regard to this thing we're seeing here with David. Because if you know how God has called you, then you can engage in that and experience victory and virtue the way God would design it to be. But if you don't know how you're called, or if you know how you're called and you disengage from it, then the victory and the virtue will be on the table. And no one will get to experience that. And so I want to ask you three questions that I'm asking myself as well for us all to kind of reevaluate what our calling is. And hopefully these questions will help you clarify your calling. Three questions, very simple. Number one, where has God placed me? Where am I? In David's case, he was placed as a shepherd boy, learned how to use a sling when God called him to destroy Goliath. In David's case, he was placed as a harpist in the palace of King Saul when God called him to go on the run. In David's case, he was placed in the palace here when God met him and said, I'm making a covenant with you. David starts in a place. Even though God wants us to go and be engaged in the thing he wants us to do, where has God placed me is the first question. Question number two, how did in the past or how might in the future God use me to bring some victory? Is there some way in my life that God has brought victory to someone else, that God has brought victory to a situation? Has God ever used me to bring victory? And is there something in me that I know God could use to bring victory in the future? The did gives you clarity on where you might be called. The might gives you some clarity on where you might be called. But it's the synergy of the two of them that might give you clarity on where you might be called. But it's the question. 
Where has God given me victory? And then question number three is how did in the past or how might God in the future use me to bring virtue? Where in this world is there some virtue needed that God has uniquely positioned me to bring? This is a tough question. My dad went 16 years in one church struggling to figure out what the change call on his life meant. The people in that church struggled for 16 years wondering why my dad was changing from one particular aspect of ministry to another particular aspect of ministry. And and things like that just happen in church life, but they happen in your life, they happen in my life, they happen in business, they happen in politics, they happen in families. And here's the question. What has God actually called me to? Because if I get that figured out, If I get it figured out where God has actually called me to, then, if you get that figured out, then I can stand up here and I can say, engage in it. Go all in. Be fully present to it. Be fully present in that moment. Find your calling and step all the way into it. And when things don't look like they're working as well as they need to work, when victory seems like it's only halfway, when virtue seems like it's gone, then the solution is not to find a different calling. The solution is to engage where God has placed you, where victory is happening, where virtue is coming. And what you need to do and what I need to do is to be the kind of people who say, all I have to do is figure out how God is called and then be fully present in that moment because the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. But if he didn't go, there was no victory to be had. There's a lot of places where this might land in your life and in my life. And so I want to ask us to spend a few moments in quiet reflection. If you have our app, you can open up the digital connect card and you can type in some thoughts and prayer requests into that to let me know kind of what God is doing in your heart at this moment. But I want to invite you just to spend a little bit of time in quiet, recognizing that one of these days when we enter heaven, all of these questions are going to be explained. But for this moment, the victory and virtue that comes into this world comes through you and through me. We just have to have a little more clarity on what our calling is and how to engage in it all the way. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.